Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. All right, so official hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diversity in Gaming panel. Uh, my name is Amanda Hammond. I am the managing developer for Starfinder. And uh, I'll lay out a loose structure here for the panel of what we'll do for the next hour or so. Plan is uh, for um, all of the illustrious panelists here to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about uh, just what they do in the company and um, maybe any diversity efforts that they have going on uh, or things like that. And uh, then we will get right into some questions that we'll pose to the panelists and they'll share all of their thoughts and we'll have a discussion up here. And then probably with about 20 minutes or so left to go, we'll open it up to your questions. Um, I do ask that you save your questions for the end of the panel um, and that when you ask a question, it's a question rather than uh, a comment just to save time. And if we have some time at the end, then um, I'm okay with us kind of back and forth uh, chatting as long as these guys are. But until then, we wanted to focus on questions. So um, I think we'll go ahead and let Leanne introduce herself. Hi, I am Leanne Marcel. I am not actually on staff at Paizo because quite sensibly I don't think they would do that to themselves. Um, I have written a couple of novels. The Pathfinder tales I've done have been Night Glass, Nightblade, Hell Knight, and then I've written for the uh, Lost Ovens World's Guide and a couple of other projects as well. Very cool. So, hi, I'm Linda Zeiss-Palmer. I am a developer at Paizo. I work on the Pathfinder Society and the Pathfinder Adventure Card Society, formerly known as the the Adventure Card Guild, until a few weeks ago. I am Diego Valdez. I, uh, I do customer service for Paizo, but I've also recently started doing some freelance writing for them as well. So, some ACG stuff and some Starfinder stuff and some PF2 stuff. Very cool. Um, and like I said, my name's Amanda, and um, I'm involved in a whole bunch of stuff at Paizo. Um, but on the diversity side, I do talks like this at conventions all over the place. Um, do a lot of work with uh, hiring diversity consultants for some of our many products that we uh, publish, um, and in general, just um, think that this is a very important thing um, for the industry and just kind of media culture in general. Um, first question that we uh, think that we'll start out with today is uh, just a very simple one. Um, when we say that a game setting and its characters are diverse, what does that mean um, to you guys, and how do you think diversity is related to inclusion of players at the table? And we'll start with Ian. I don't know if I'm the best person to answer the question how it's represented um, or how it reflects in players at the table. My perception is based more about writing, you know, books and stories. Um, and I think that diversity is really important because it allows you to tell a more truthful story, a story that more accurately reflects the world. So much of what we think of as, you know, like, medieval Europe was all white people is not actually true. That's just kind of what we've been told. If you look at old movies, you know, from the 30s and the 40s, it's overwhelmingly white people if other characters show up, it's always in like secondary roles, or their maids, or their servants. And again, that's a very selective, narrow view. So I think that when we talk about diversity, what we're all actually talking about is widening the field of vision, and making it more reflective and more beautiful, and recognizing more stories that have been typically ignored. So to me, it's not so much about pushing people into the picture as pushing the barriers away from the sides of your vision. Yeah. I find that... Um from my experience in, in GMing, that if you don't state the if you don't state the race and the gender of a character that is in a position of power, people will overwhelmingly assume that it's a white male. So, so, so when you see that sort of thing going on, you want to if you don't write it into your adventure, 
people are going to people are going to just kind of have that assumption. And I think that it's important for people to see representations, uh, like Leanne was saying, of uh, diverse groups of people in positions of power. That there are leaders that people can look to and say, "Hey, you know, this campaign shows that people who the people who look like me." people who are like me are in positions of power and they're trusted and they're respected. And I think that that really helps to welcome people to the world. And the diversity also helps with um, presenting a variety of different perspectives on a situation. Um, and you were talking about it in the context of storytelling and having a more, a more authentic narrative. But, um, but I, I think this is, this is related to that in a way that you're saying, hey, you know what, different people are going to have different ways of approaching a situation. Different people are going to have different ideas. Different people are going to have different lived experiences. And that really helps to make the narrative just that much richer. I'm gonna, I was going to touch on the same things that Linda did in that I feel that there's such a variety of uh, perspectives and worldviews and just the way people see the world around them and experience the world around them uh, that there's such a range of stories that can be told about that people can tell. And if we, if we limit it to just one group of people, those stories don't get told. And uh, it, I think it's valuable to reflect not only those stories but the people who have lived them and experienced them and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I agree with everything that they're saying up here, um, and a, a little bit of um, just building on that. I think that um, a long time ago, uh, early in gaming, it was way, it was very, very common that um, most of the names on the books were uh, male names, and most of the characters uh, were assumed to be white men, and there was just a, a very large lack of diversity. And so, people who you know are are our age up here sort of grew up without um, being able to see ourselves reflected in uh, the games, and uh, without being able to understand that, like, oh, there's a diverse range of people who are creating the games, which was true, but that was just not necessarily the representation that you would see when you would go to these big conventions like Gen Con and meet people who worked on games. Um, and so, we sort of started out not even knowing that that was really an option for us, and uh, it just makes it a lot harder when you're um, considering you know what you're interested in uh, what games you want to play um, that this is also an option for you um, as opposed to like well somebody who's always seen themselves represented in games and have, has taken that for granted well of course that's not an option for them and they would want to try and so that's sort of starting out um, with a disadvantage uh, or an advantage one way or the other so that's that's a little bit of why I think um, one reason why I think diversity is very important. Um, you guys all work on lots and lots of different types of media and games and books. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is one of your favorite examples of diversity and either something you've worked on or something that you've encountered within your career? I want to go last because I need to think about how I want to say this. Okay. So, I know okay, Linda has an answer. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so I'm not necessarily good at these questions that are like, pick your one favorite. So I'm going to talk more about the process. Um, so one of the processes that I've been working on with uh, with John and the others on the organized play team is getting a list of all of the venture captains and all the people we have in positions of power, looking at them and being like, okay, how many of these are straight white men? And the answer was well over half of them. So we're looking at, okay, when we're creating new people to be in positions of power, how can we make this more, how can we make this more accurately reflect the diversity of our world and reflect the diversity of our player base? And how can we say, okay, you know what? we want this to be more representative. So we're looking at things too, like, you know, even if you have women in positions of power, um, 
are they overwhelmingly depicted in, in dresses that would imply that they have some magical push-up bras going on and they're young and beautiful and they're wearing makeup all the time? <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, so we need to introduce some older women. We need to introduce we introduce, need to introduce women with different experiences, maybe women who have maybe women who have scars, maybe we need to introduce women of size so that you don't just have like everyone looks kind of the same and it's like, oh yeah, change the face a little bit. It's a it's a stereotypical model beautiful twenty five year old leader woman. Um, so we look at that. We look at um, we also look at um, diversity of the different. Um, so we look at um, ethnic diversity as well. So if you're looking at who is in charge in a particular area. Does it look like there's someone who's from that area, or does it look like you know you're you're in Vudra, but you just you just happen to put a white dude in charge? Like why? Okay, so let's let's fix this. Let's let's change this and things like that. And we wanted to look at that. Um, we wanted to look at that sort of organically within the story. And one of the ways that we've been doing that is sort of looking at when we have those leaders who who have their other who have other issues. Like we had one and we had one in Jalmeray who was like. Oh yeah, you know this person laughed about enslaving someone, and it's like we don't want that person in charge. Okay, so we're replacing this person, and whenever we're whenever we're doing a replacement, whenever we're doing an addition, we're looking to how can we how can we improve the overall diversity of our setting. Uh, and, uh, do you have some? Okay, yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> Please. <laughs> oh, so uh, when I was growing up, I was a really really big Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched those movies, we had some recorded versions of them that the tape is basically worn out of. I could recite Return of the Jedi by memory and all that. And uh, something I really enjoyed was pilots, X-Wing pilots. I adored them. Um, and it wasn't until until uh, The Force Awakens came out uh, that I, I I hadn't realized how much, how significant that was to me until uh, I saw Poe Dameron, a Spanish-speaking man, uh, flying an X-Wing and I started to get a little misty-eyed, and I hadn't realized that realized that it had that I had felt that way through my whole life. Like like someone like me couldn't do that. Um, so that was that was a really significant thing for me. Um, in addition to that, you know, one thing that I've been trying to do in the writing I'm doing, and this might have a little bit of a gods and magic spoiler, if that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote some of the Imperial Lords for the upcoming uh, Lost Omens uh, Gods and Magic book that was announced last night. And uh, one of the ones that I really wanted to work on was uh, Arshea because uh, she's very much about about uh, freedom of expression, and that should reflect everyone. Um, but unfortunately, to me, some of our previous uh, stuff really, really focused on the sexual expression sorts of things. Uh, so I tried to kind of it still exists because it's part of who, what she is. But I tried to back that off and push forward. Uh, some other things, and the main thing I wanted to focus on was body positivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Arshea, when she appears to people now, she appears in their body. She's a reflection of them. Uh, so it's supposed to signify that, like, look, you are perfect as you are. Um, you're so perfect that a god chose to wear your body. That's really cool. That's that awesome. is a really great I, that I didn't know so about cool. that. Yeah. Good job, Diego. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, I never would have thought of that, but that's amazing. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't want to go. <laughs> I'm not chopping that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give a, a quick one if, uh, if sure, you yeah. want a moment to. Okay. Thank you. Take the bullet. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm just going to use a fairly recent example um, from a book that I developed called Inner Sea Taverns. And there's a tavern. So this book, for those of you who aren't familiar uh, with it, it's been out for a little while. 
um, is uh, chapters of a tavern, a specific in-world tavern that is located in different regions throughout Galarian, and, and we really looked for taverns that um, were all over the place and had all sorts of different themes, and, you know, we've got, like, a steampunk bar, and um, we've got, uh, like, a, a tea room in Taldor um, for, like, the, the high-ranking um, folks there, and, and just all sorts of really neat in-world stuff, but one of the bars, uh, written by um, a developer at Paizo named Eleanor Farron, uh, was uh, it called the Alinth Tavern. It was in this elven city where uh, the entire city is built into the trees. And um, it was just really beautiful from the, the elven cultural perspective. But one of the things that was uh, made me really happy is that she made it uh, extremely accessible. And she really focused on um, talking about how uh, everybody was welcome at this bar. It was run by uh, a blind elven woman who um, had really uh, just sort of embraced it as a safe place for people, uh, uh, different, differently able people of all types. And so um, she talked about how there's magic that um, allowed uh, you know, like anybody to access the tree and um, that all of the different types of food uh, were um, sort of like magically tinged um, to make sure that it wasn't going to be, they weren't going to be bad for anybody's allergies or anything like that. And so I just really thought that that was a beautiful expression of inclusivity in like a town where it might be like, oh, this this character that I have or maybe me as a person, like I, I couldn't actually access these things that are really cool. Um, at the forefront of that was, no, this is for everybody. And here's how, um, you know, welcoming the atmosphere is, you know, just without anybody even asking basically for it so I just thought that was a really cool way to include that in the book and it's not something that um, might not necessarily be thought of but um, Eleanor did a really great job yeah. on that tavern and that was uh, actually she wrote that for me before she got hired um, okay. I really think that was one of the things that was just like oh Eleanor is so cool <laughs> um, so I have one more thing there do you want to no okay. I never want to okay um, well actually listen, listening to you talk about specific examples in particular I'm thinking about another adventure captain that we introduced relatively recently, who, uh, Bjersig Torsen, who is a deaf venture captain who has a guide dog, and this guide dog's art is actually literally based off of a picture of... This is my dog. Of Amanda's <laughs> dog, Ajax. We just said that, we just sent in the picture of, of Amanda's dog. He's super cute, and then you can see, like, that. He's a big black and white husky, He's and everybody so loves him. <laughs> yeah, and, and people people love him in game, too, by the way. So oh, yay. Just, like, yay, so yay, happy. He's a popular venture captain, but just showing, like, you know, that it's like, okay, you know, he's deaf, and we're not going to say, like, oh, he's deaf, and he does things in exactly the same way as other people. Like, he has his, uh, like, um, he has his guide dog. His guide dog lets him know, nudges him when someone comes in the room, and then he turns around, and then he's, he's going to communicate with people, and he's going mm-hmm. to talk to people, and he's going to interact in that way. So it's just, you know, providing a, a realistic portrayal of people who have differences in how they how they go about things and how they can they can have positions of power. Yeah, and I would I would be remiss to not mention the fact that when we're uh, writing about these um, topics, that um, getting diversity consultants is very important yes. to us when we're writing outside of our own experience. And so, for example, when we have um, pieces that touch on uh, disabilities. Um, uh, or uh, related topics. Um, we have a woman who will do diversity consultant for us who's a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Elsa Henry, and uh, this is one of the things uh, that she does. Um, so we get professional feedback to make sure that we're not doing something irresponsibly or doing something that is actually an unintentionally harmful um, to this marginalized group. Um, it is very. This is something that we'll probably talk about later, but it is very important to make sure that, um, you know, wanting to include diversity is not necessarily uh, always 
perfect and so um or wanting to is good but doing it is not perfect unless you're actually like getting the feedback of somebody within that group and i know that um when it came to doing things for horror adventures and when mm-hmm. it came to doing things for there's an adventure at pathfinder society adventure that includes a character with ptsd like that we we brought on you know psychologists and other consultants to make sure that we were we're using respectful language yeah absolutely and and we're not perfect and we make mistakes and i think it's important to recognize that but yes. um we do take as many steps as we can to make sure that we are being responsible when we're doing these things you're gonna get it, I'm gonna get it wrong sometimes. Let me not say you're going to get it wrong because I assume you're probably better at it than I am. But uh, one of the things that I've struggled with is that yeah, a lot of times I am going to get it wrong. And when you're writing um, as a novelist, one of the crutches that you can fall back on that I have fallen back on and probably will do again is um, you can include a character that is not a point of view character and that is perceived from the outside and then that's a little bit of a crutch and that you don't necessarily have to put yourself into someone's head but you do have to regard them in, you know, like they can occupy a certain role in the world and you don't necessarily have to, you know, like I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to put myself in your shoes necessarily. That is kind of a bridge technique, I guess, to get their part of the way. And then when you feel more comfortable, when you're a little more confident in your footing, you can try to go beyond that and write it as a point of view character. So that is a thing that I have done sometimes when it's kind of like, I want to have the inclusivity, I want to have the representation, but I don't feel totally confident that I would get it right, writing from the inside of that person's skin. Did you have an example that you wanted to share? Yeah, um, but I'd have to go like outside of my Pathfinder work. Um, That's totally yeah, fine. <laughs> so in my Dragon Age novel, where I actually put my dog in the book, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing we do. <laughs> yeah. So my dog is in Dragon Age. Um, <laughs> that's awesome, by the way. Nice. Um, so I had two characters that I really wanted to put into that one. Um, one of the point of view characters is Isaiah, who's kind of an example of accidental inclusivity. I was not intending for her to be an asexual character. There were other things that I wanted to do with that. But then a number of asexual readers read it, and they were like, holy shit, you put this character in the book? And I was like, that's totally awesome. Not on purpose, but I will absolutely take credit for that. Which is unfair, because, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's it's good, and I think that is a way of saying, if you are trying to be honest, if you are trying to be accurate... Um, if you're trying to reflect the world accurately and you do a good enough job of it, I think that people will see reflections in there. Um, so that was good. Another one I had was a gender-fluid character who swapped presentations back and forth. Um, so it was not non-binary. It was not um, androgynous. It was a person who very deliberately flipped from one extreme to the other, day by day. And that was a person that I didn't feel comfortable writing from inside of his skin or her skin, depending on the day. But I really wanted to have the character because part of the theme for that character was, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Dragon Age world, but in that world, mages, magic users, are extremely persecuted. And they're very tightly regulated. And so this was a person who, because of being a magic user, was not able to have full freedom of expression until they broke away from the restrictive controls. And at that point, it was like, you know what? You tried to erase me, and I'm going to be so flamboyant now because I survived, and I'm going to be exactly who I want to be every single day. And so I wanted to be able to include that, you know, because I thought that's a cool concept. Also, I can write so many amazing costumes for this character, (laughs) which was definitely like, yeah, I can put so many sequins and spangles and feathers. And I was like, yep, doing that. So (laughs) that was honestly like 40% of the reason, right? Being honest. Um, So that was one where I did that. 
kind of a crutch thing. Yeah, that's very cool. So we sort of uh, started to touch on intersectionality, and I kind of wanted to veer in that direction a little bit. And when I say intersectionality, what I mean is uh, making sure that not only you're including, for example, women, but you're also including uh, women of color and queer women and trans women um, and people who uh, have many overlapping um, uh, vectors of marginalization just because uh, we want to make sure that we're including all groups and um, if you're not specifically thinking about that sort of thing it can be easy to accidentally exclude somebody so I wanted to ask our panelists here um, are there some ways that you keep that into the forefront of your mind when you're going through uh, either your writing or you know like a maybe um, Leanne for example if you're looking at a, a like an IP that maybe you're interested in writing um, is there a way that you consider how you can include lots and lots of different types of identities. Yes, but again, I'm going to have to kick that over for a second because okay. I need to formulate. There's like a thing about the lands of the Lindorm Kings that I kind of want to talk about. Oh, but I'll interesting. Get back to it. Cool. Well, um, one thing that I do when I'm looking at a scenario is, um, and looking at seasons more generally, is I'll go through and I'll look at, okay, kind of a list of who who do I have, who are the primary people in this adventure, and who are sort of the the more secondary roles, and try to try to balance balance among that. So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, if I'm counting it and I have like, okay, well, you know, there are there are women in this story, there are people of color in this story, but they're taking on the secondary roles. And I'll look at that and I'll ask myself, like, okay, can I can I switch some of these characters around? Because I mean in the development phase I can I can often make those sorts of make those sorts of changes. I think um, it's something that um, something that I would certainly like to get into more would be um, would be diversity of uh, di- diversity of uh, preferences, like in terms of like you know queer people and things like that. In um, in the in scenarios, we tend to present people kind of in a vacuum. A lot of times, it's like, oh, this is a venture captain. Who's their family? Who are they? Who you know? Who do, who do they? Who do they love? Things like that that doesn't necessarily come up. So that's something that we're you know we're working on. Uh, we're working on presenting more going forward. Since you do have a lot of these characters that are just presented to give you some information for a few minutes, or they're there for you to attack them or whatever, and so you generally don't necessarily see them in as many lights. Okay. This one's a little harder for me because I have a, a very small body of work that I have done, um, but the. Uh, with like the ACG scenarios I was writing, I was making sure to, uh, when I introduced characters, I would say, okay, the last one I brought in was a man, so this one will be a woman. Nice. Um, and so I was trying to, trying to make sure I had a, a, an equal spread this way. Um, and with each, each individual, I was trying to make sure that I had people from different nations around <coughs> Galarian, uh, different, um, different uh, who identified differently from the others. I, I tried to make everyone a unique person who could represent a different group of people. Um, and with the ACG, they're very small scenarios, so it wasn't like a whole lot of that that I could do. Um, one thing that I did run into with, uh, with Arshay and the Gods and Magic thing is that uh, I was concerned that uh, for trans people, uh, saying the body you're in right now is perfect would be mm. problematic. Uh, so I did go and talk to a number of, of trans friends that I know and, and, and get their thoughts on that. And uh, so in that in those cases, uh, Arshea will appear in the body they should be in. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I, I don't have too much other experience. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, really awesome. Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, transgender representation in particular, we're very fortunate in Pathfinder Society to have several, um, several great transgender authors, and so they've been able to bring those sorts of characters to life. And you know, if we're if we're writing an adventure that has a transgender character and they're not, you know, the author on that, then we can talk to them and make sure you know this presentation is this presentation is going to be right. So, and, and one thing with that um, that we've heard is that like you know, if you have a transgender character, that they're not going to walk up to you and be like, "Hi, everybody, I'm transgender." Yeah. So like making sure to making sure to present that in a way that's like you know that it's authentic to that character and it's not you know, it's, it's accurate to how they would want to be represented. Yeah. I think it just can't be emphasized enough how important it really is to make sure not only that you're including diverse characters so that, you know, everybody in the audience can see themselves reflected, but that you're getting those people to actually write those stories as much as possible. Um, and that you're making sure, you know, that us as, as authors and developers reaching out to people for consulting, but also just the pool of writers that we hire, making sure that they are diverse. That's sort of like a whole nother conversation, but um, just emphasizing that, uh, you know, to be a good ally, you can't actually do that unless you have really bought into, I am trying to lift up folks who are from marginalized backgrounds, trying to get them writing jobs, trying to support them, um, you know, just because it makes all of our writing better, it makes all the content better, it makes the industry better, it makes the game better. Um, so um, just reflecting a little bit of what Linda and Diego said, you know, trying to make sure that um, you're elevating those voices as much as possible and also um, recognizing that it's not their responsibility to give you feedback when uh, their group is represented in um, media or things that we're writing, but um, that reaching out to them uh, to, to see if they're interested in providing feedback is uh, important as well. Um, so I think like just uh, deliberate consciousness, at least for me, is probably what I try to do the most when I'm keeping intersectionality in mind. Uh, I, early on in my career at Paizo, um, of course, you know, I'm a woman, so I wanted to make sure that uh, I was developing this early product that had, and it had women in it, and it, it, the turnover didn't have that many, and so I added some, and then... Um, you know, did my work and kind of turned it over. And I had a conversation later on with Wes Schneider, who uh, was like, um, "This is this is awesome, but uh, can you count the number of people of color in this product?" And it was like a 64-page product, and I'm like oh, there's only one or two, and he's like, yeah, you really need to make sure that you keep that in mind, and so that was a really eye-opening thing for me to be like, oh, okay, not only do I need to make sure that I'm thinking about this in general, but that I'm including everybody as much as possible, um, and so, you know, now I'll always go back through things and look to see, you know, uh, do we make sure we don't have just, it's just homogenous, right, of all the different types of characters, but, you know, have we included... Uh, characters from people of color we included queer characters if we included trans characters um and i can do that for you know a breadth of products in the position that i'm in now um so it's it's sort of a learning experience and recognizing that you know uh where your levels of privilege are and are not and being able to kind of reach out and uh, try to supplement as much as you can yeah okay so um going back to intersectionality a lot of what makes let me think of how I want to phrase this. A lot of it is an interplay between a person's personal traits and the culture in which they find themselves. So, for example, where I was going with the lands of Lunarum Kings is that here we have a country that places great emphasis on physical strength, physical ability. 
And you can contrast that with other or other regions such as Nex, everything is very magical, everything is very magic-based. So what is perceived as a disability in one area is not going to be the same thing as what is perceived as a disability in another area. And if you want to bring out certain aspects of each culture, if you want to really examine how these things work, then you look at it from a perspective of a character holding different traits. For example, somebody who's missing a leg in Nidal may be considered awesome because you cut that leg off on purpose so you could replace it with a chiton part. <laughs> completely different from how that person may be perceived as you were a great warrior in the lands of the Lenormand kings, then a Lenormand bit your leg off. Where are you now? Who are you now? It's different. You have to examine what that means because there are some things that are concrete. The physical traits are going to be concrete regardless. But how that influences and where that places the person in the culture is going to change. So intersectionality, the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's not static. It is always an interplay between who you are, what you have, where you live, and how people perceive that. And so I think that is one of the ways that diversity in, um, in characters can really bring out the depth of the game world because you're showing it through different lenses in different ways and emphasizing different aspects of each culture. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, you guys, I think uh, pretty much everybody here uh, runs games um, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, what advice would you give to a GM who wants to include, uh, or a writer who wants to include diversity in their games, but is just not quite sure exactly how, or maybe they have um, specific concerns uh, or questions? What, what advice would you give? Do you want to start? Um, number one, talk to people. Talk to your friends. Try to get their feedback as honestly as you can, as non-judgmentally as you can. Um, there are certain people whose political opinions I disagree with really strongly. They're mostly my parents' friends. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I will just be like, okay, I'm going to shut up for the next five minutes and just let you rant about whatever you want to rant about and pick out whatever I can from there because that gives me some insights into certain types of generally antagonist characters, to be honest with you. But <laughs> nice. <it's> like, <laughs> Channel that rage. It's like, yeah, here's, okay, here's how you work. And that's, what, that, that's the logic that's in your head. Okay, cool. Now I know that. Um, that's kind of like the dark side version of doing that. But if you can, you know, just listen to people. Try to get their lived experiences. And, you know, the website Medium is, uh, it's like amateur blogs from, like, everybody from all different walks of life. And that is one way to, you know, get a glimpse into somebody's head without necessarily having to pry or be intrusive. It's just like they'll put out what they're comfortable with you reading, and then you can pick it up from there. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I guess um, from the from the perspective uh, from the perspective of GMing things, I just I like to look at sort of these these factors in terms of um, all the all, all these different diversity factors and consider the characters that I'm introducing um, and the characters that I'm introducing in this story and sort of building that building that organically along the way. Like, hey, you know, is it have I been introducing a lot of characters who are who are fit into one particular group? Okay, I'm going to introduce a character who fits into a different group. I mean, I mentioned the I mentioned the assumption things before. Um, the, the number of times when I'm like, you know, Constable Tivero, whatever, and then like, ah, he yada yada. It's like, oh, she da 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 da. Um, so so just making sure to present. And I think um, one thing that really helps with this too is uh, is describing your characters, um, even if you're not going to go into detail with. Um, because you're you're running you're running a game, you're not necessarily going to go into as much detail as you would when writing a book about like you know exactly what do they look like in terms of like what is their clothing they're wearing. But you know mentioning mentioning factors about them, mentioning their you know okay you know mentioning you know okay they're a woman, okay you know they are like they're a Gurundi person. They're you know they the the details that the details that matter for that character to help people visualize them and help people understand. Um, who they're who they're interacting with to uh, sort of push back against that that default that people have in their heads. 
something that I like to do uh, with my players is when they want to build a character, you know, oftentimes people will want to know like what countries are like. Um, I always make sure to have a couple that are largely undefined uh, because if a player wants to play a specific type of character or a specific uh, kind, um, there's basically a place that they can uh, take ownership of. And mm -hmm. the culture there and the people there will be whatever they want it to be. And I, one of the things I've learned in doing this is that if you let players do this, instead of trying to play a character that's supposed to be there, they play what they want to see reflected in the game. And as they play that, I can pay attention to the things they say, the things they do, and I can kind of see how, how the culture that that character grew up in is, is growing through the, their actions, and I can make sure that when I introduce NPCs from that region, that I can maintain that with them. So basically, I let them build the country for me. <laughs> nice. Good job, Diego. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, gosh. Um, so I get this question a fair amount, um, largely from people who are running maybe older material, or like I had mentioned, uh, material that uh, is not incredibly diverse or might be actively problematic, uh, wanting to know, uh, hey, I really want to make sure that this is a welcoming, um, inclusive game, however, and I really like the story of this game, um, or you know, we're running sort of a nostalgia piece, but how do I fix this stuff that I know um, is a problem? And some advice that I've heard that comes out of the indie game scene uh, involves randomization of NPCs. And so um, I think it's actually a really cool idea. There's even a couple of indie game developers who will um, like write names of NPCs and like gender bend them or in some ways like change something about their background. Or if it's a character who's mentioned as, oh, you know, his wife is uh, the bartender over here, they change it and they say his husband is the bartender over here or, or something like that. And so they'll take all these kind of random elements and sometimes just write them on a card and sort of pull it out when they need an NPC and they'll use that NPC or that version of that NPC in place of what was originally written um, or say there's you know like a really sexist element of the way an NPC treats somebody they'll um, just take that out uh, entirely and it turns out that it is entirely your prerogative to change written material you are not um, beholden to write uh, to run something exactly as written and um, it's very freeing, I think, when a lot of people uh, realize that, oh, hey, I can change uh, elements of this NPC's background, or I can um, put this NPC who didn't exist, but it's, uh, you know, as a character I really want to see represented in there. Um, and, you know, that's very fun for you as the game master, but it's also great for your players as well, um, because, you know, they're getting more of a breadth of the story and they're getting more depth of what's going on um, within the world. Uh, so, um, I think that might be a good transition into talking a little bit. I think everybody here has run um, uh, lots of things for a long time, so you've probably encountered a lot of that type of material. What are um, some of your strategies or some of the best way th ways that you handle material that's um, not necessarily uh, as diverse as you'd want it or that might have problematic elements? We'll s start with Diego. Um, for things that are not as diverse as, diverse as I wanted, it's, for me that's a pretty easy one because it's like you were saying, I don't have... I'm not, I'm not chained to whatever is in the module or the campaign setting or whatever. I can, I can modify it, and I, I'm very comfortable doing that. Um, when I run into things that are uh, problematic, that one's a little tougher because I don't always think about all the ways that that may influence the rest of like the social structures that, that the world has. 
um, my, my instinct is to just toss that part out. Um, but then sometimes that makes other things awkward or weird or why is this like this now? Um, uh, so I've been trying to pay attention to more uh, games that try to deal with that in different ways. And uh, there is one that I'm really looking forward to coming out called uh, Dragons Conquer America. It's, it's uh, set in 16th century Americas. Uh, but one of the things that they did in that was uh, they wanted to make it less patriarchal um, than, than the real world. <laughs> um, but one of the ways they did that was instead of just saying it's just not, uh, because then you have a lot of other organizational <coughs> and power things that don't really work, um, was that they decided to build new pillars uh, for women's strength. Uh, which instead of which elevates them up to the same uh, social power that men have, and, and they do this by like they were introducing dragons into the world, and one of the ways they did it is only only women can ride dragons. Dragons won't tolerate men, and uh, so this puts in terms of like military strength and stuff like that, women in a very strong position that they don't have in the real world, and uh, so I think things like that are very interesting. It's, it's a little harder for me to do because I'm not always aware of all the things that will that, that'll impact until I do them. Yeah, um, generally, um, I will, generally I would look to remove or change those elements. There are some cases when I, if, if the players are comfortable with it, I will keep them in there but present it in a different light. So, you know, if there's an NPC who is, who is expressing some of these views, an NPC who is behaving in a misogynistic fashion like you know, the PCs can be, if the PCs are, if players are interested in this, the PCs can be part of the change of, you know, either getting this person to stop doing that or getting this person to stop being in a position of power or other things like that. So if they want to engage with, say, like, okay, you know, they're going to, they're going to smack this down themselves, they can. But usually I would be just changing it. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, it really depends for me what the table wants, what the players want, and what elements it is that we're talking about. For example, um, the example of swapping out bartender's husband for, you know, bartender's wife is generally fine. Most of Paizo's game world is written such that you could make that swap one-to-one, and it wouldn't matter. It would change nothing in the story. However, there are a lot of instances where it would, in fact, change something in the story, and in those instances, um, it really depends what specific plot element we're talking about, mm-hmm. but... My preference is generally to leave it as written, present it in a neutral light, let the players react to it how they will, but if there is a problematic element in the story, we're going to recognize that it's problematic, and then it's going to stay there, and then you can confront with that or deal with it. But it really depends whether the players want like the uplifting power fantasy, or they want the gritty worms and dirt version, you know? It's kind of like, what are you in the mood for? Do you want to deal with this aspect of real- reality? Is that fun for you? Or do we want to just you know, not confront that. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. And I think uh, reading the temperature of the room is very important as well. Yeah, you have to know your players. I mean, like, that's mm-hmm. always everything about GMing. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. Yeah, because the, the example the example I had is, uh, you know, there was the, uh, the change with uh, the change with the Rastal's presentation. So, um, so I had presented in one of my games a, an Rastal cleric who was 
who was very much that old style, like, you know, women in the kitchen type of Rastal cleric, but then the there was a PC druid of a Rastal, and one of his sort of goals was to was to change the culture in that town and to to change the into so that like that particular that particular thing wouldn't wouldn't be there anymore and that I think it was it was satisfying for him to sort of be like okay you know what this is this is not the way that, that we're going to do things here. Does anybody else have anything that they wanted to touch on before we open up to questions? I don't think so. I think ultimately my only advice is, look, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. It's fine. Go yep. ahead and take the plunge. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And then when people call you out for being wrong, just don't defend it. Just be like, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I screwed up. I'll do it yeah. better next time. Yep. But yeah. That's the thing. And, and that's... Learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. one of the things I wanted to emphasize as well is that it's not about not making a mistake. Everybody is going to make a mistake. It's about how you react when you realize that you've made that mistake or that mistake has been pointed out to you. Um, like Leanne said, not doubling down, of course. Um, but... And not trying to, in some ways, defend yourself or be passive-aggressive about it, but just saying, oh, I'm sorry, um, what do you think would improve that? Uh, And to ask for advice and to to move forward. Um, And I think that, you know, nine times out of ten, somebody who points it out has thought about it, you know, really heavily and made a decision whether they're going to bring it up. And so um, being sensitive to the fact that um, this is probably a big thing that they're bringing to you. Um, So you want to work with them and not um, make them feel like that they shouldn't have brought it up in the first place. Um, Does anybody have any specific questions for us about anything at all? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. What do you got? So, um, you were... I mean, to go, go off that point, um, I um, also don't like being wrong to begin with. So <laughs> that's welcome. why we're doing it for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. See, you're welcome. <laughs> and I don't have money to hire diversity counselors. Right, there. right, of course. What are some common pitfalls that you see? Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, well, I would say uh, stereotyping. So, you know, if you, so, like, if you see, like, you know, making sure that, making sure that when you present um, diverse characters that they're taking on a variety of different roles rather than, like, you know, whatever, whatever the first thing that comes to your mind of, like, what, what would this person do? What would this person be like? You know, it's important to question, like, is that a stereotype or is that, like, you know, actually, actually going to be a part of their identity? Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. What about, what about the rest of you? I think for me, um, at this point where we are now in 2019, I think the biggest problem that I see is people just uh, like color swapping the palette without changing anything else. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ignores the whole lived experience. I mean, like, you know, you're not just, you're not just changing one thing superficially and then it's exactly the same character and you can just plug and play them to exactly the same experience. The hard part is really, and this is where I often fail, is really thinking through every nuance of what it would be like to be that person in this situation. It changes a lot. And it changes a lot of things that you can't always see unless you've stood in those shoes, which is why you fail, or why I fail. But um, I think that's the hardest part at this point. Um, it's just kind of like assuming that, okay, well, you know, it's going to be the same for a dude, it's going to be the same for a lady, it's going to be the same for somebody who's neither of those things or both of those things. You know, it's like, it's different. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's it's worth... It's worth trying, even if you even if you know you're you're going to even if you're going to get it wrong sometimes because everyone's going to get it wrong sometimes. It's better to to reach for and to continue to develop that representation rather than saying, 
oh, I'm only going to, you know, make characters that are more like me because because that's what I know. It's 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 an evolving process. I mean, I, I know certainly I've learned I've learned so much since being at Paizo about yeah. about how to about how to do better representation. Mm-hmm. So uh, going off of some things that Leanne said just now and also earlier, um, RPG books, by, by the nature of their word counts and everything, tend to get something that is very monolithic. So yeah. uh, th- this place is an Egypt analog, and that means it has pyramids. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and like that's, that's how RPG books often present like the differences in ethnicity, but it's not those things that make, that make people different. Uh, it's like she was saying earlier, these small things, the, mm-hmm. the way people speak, the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with their world. Yeah. And a lot of times a good way to uh, start to understand that a little bit better, especially if you don't have access to a person who can, who can uh, uh, look it over for you, is uh, you'll be, you can find lots of books that are basically collections of essays of people basically just talking about their life experiences. Uh, one that I can mention that I know offhand is, is a book called I Am Aztalan. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just uh, essays about uh, of Spanish-speaking people. Just, you know, one of them is about a guy going for an interview at a job. And it's just his thoughts on that whole thing. And so reading things like this can get you, can, can really help you understand the, the way the world looks to the, to the people that you're, that you're trying to include. And uh, those are the things that make in peoples different. Like, not the pyramids, <laughs> but the things they do and the things they say. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really great thing. And building a little bit off of that, um, you know, reading things, um, being very deliberate about what you're reading and what you're consuming um, can be extremely helpful. Um, so like Diego said, you know, collections of essays of people different lived experiences is really cool. Um, there are a number of different types of anthologies um, from writers of different backgrounds. There's one that I'm thinking of in particular. This is actually a series of anthologies, but it's specifically called Queers Destor- Destroy Science Fiction, and it's um, a collection of sci-fi stories, uh, cyberpunk and sci-fi stories that are all written by um, authors of various queer identities. And um, it's an awesome, 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 awesome collection, really cool stories. Um, but it's uh, from... There's all sorts of characters from perspectives that you might not have encountered a lot um, uh, or who, that aren't also uh, often represented in uh, various other collections of science, science fiction. And uh, the really cool thing about that is that a couple of those stories actually got made into shorts from the Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, the, the short A Helping Hand specifically came from that anthology, and I recognized it as soon as I started uh, to watch it. It was just like, oh my gosh, it's a really intense story. It's so cool, and it came from you know this anthology. Um, so that's a digression, but um, you know, paying attention to what you're consuming, and um, I think it makes a very big difference when you're going to create either create a game world or just... You know, run a game um, where you're wanting to include people from different identities when everything that you have in your background has been things that have been written by straight white cis males um, as opposed to, uh, oh, you know, you've read a whole bunch of things of authors of color, of queer authors, and those sorts of things like then the diversity is, um, the different perspectives are going to be sort of baked into the background of your mind. That's going to give you a little bit of a better foundation for looking forward. And, and I mean, reading those sorts of contents, diversifying those sort of things, I found that it's not just, it's not just beneficial for your writing and your GMing. It's beneficial for, you know, your understanding of other people in the world. And it can be hugely personally beneficial. So it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions that we have from the audience? Report now. 
Do you have something over there? I've, I've got like 80 things. <laughs> oh, okay. I make statements, and he already basically kind of actually asked mine. Um, okay. <laughs> and like, I think I've got one tickling here. Give me a second. Okay. Anybody else while he's thinking? What you got? Kind of random. Do you find it in your in your work and in your games more difficult to insert characters of color, various sexualities, uh, those types of things, or, for example, another character who has Tourette's or an autist is on the autism spectrum mm. or suffers some type of physical disability that would make them a marginalized character in the world. That is a really great question. Yeah, that is is really good. Um, For me, it is a lot harder to include characters who have traits that I just have not spent a lot of time thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so a character with Tourette's or an autistic character would be, for me, somebody who would be hard to write because that's a very specific experience that I don't have a lot of insight into. So... Number one, because of my particular blind spots, it probably wouldn't even occur to me until somebody mentioned it. Then I would think, oh yeah, actually that's a really great idea. But those are kinds of things that would not necessarily be on my radar until somebody brought them up and made me aware of that blind spot. And then I would have to go out and research what it would be like, and then I would have to think about how to transpose those traits into the setting and make that natural to the world that we're writing about. So that would be a lot of work, which is not to say that... I wouldn't want to do it, but just those are the barriers that I would have to overcome to do it. And having failed a number of times in a number of spectacular ways, (laughs) um, it's kind of like, okay, well, I know that that's the process. But for me, at least, that would be the process. Yeah, 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 totally. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I agree I'm, with I'm, that 100%. I'm just being like, uh, what she said. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, I am the oh. expert on failure. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because, like Leanne was saying, I, that wasn't something I had really even thought about. When I, when I think about uh, diversity, I tend to think about uh, gender, ethnicity, mm-hmm. identity, orientation. Um, so, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, so I would say that that's probably harder for me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we do have we. It, it, I think that that is definitely an area where we would we would lean more on uh, we lean more on like our, our our sensitivity readers and other things like that because because the you know the more the more differences there are between you know the way that you think and the way that you know this other character might perceive the world, particularly with things like you know neurodivergence and things like that, yeah. then that's going to be that much more that you would want to you want to go to other sources either other people with that lived experience reading their things talking to them things like that yeah. and like Leanne said just doing a lot of research um I know that there's a lot of like forums and online groups where there are folks who, um, you know, are having discussions that are uh, involved with um, being a member of one of those types of communities. That would be probably somewhere where I would go, where it's like, okay, what are they saying? How are they talking about themselves in their own language? Um, what are they? Uh, what are they concerned about? What are things that uh, I probably never thought of that they have to deal with on a daily basis? And sort of going from there, and very much, you know, if I'm writing a character like that, trying to reach out to somebody um, to say, please help me, oh my gosh, and uh, like, I'm very sorry, I probably really screwed this up, what, 
what what is your take on on this type of material so yeah i would be particularly very sensitive to making sure to not make a mistake because again it, you know like leanne said very much outside my lived experience and you know you can also find uh oftentimes like youtube channels people talking about yeah, yeah something a- i'm thinking for autism in particular there's a there's a channel on youtube ask an autistic where there is uh a uh, lady named Amethyst, and she just goes through, and she's like, "Here's these questions that people ask me. I'm just going to make this, yeah. make this video about this." Yeah, online. Activists. And she talks. Yeah, she talks. Mm-hmm. She talks a lot about like, "Hey, you know, these videos that you see, these are heavily edited because I'm not actually sitting here for this amount of time." She has a video <laughs> where she talks about like, "What is my process? How do I actually do things? Yeah. How do what do I what do I need to do for things?" So I, I think that that sort of thing is is very useful. Yeah. Yeah, online activists can be really good resources for um, either including those types of characters or just sort of understanding the perspective a lot better. Um, because in many ways, there are some very generous folks out there who will take questions from the public or um, will sort of put themselves out there. Um, so I think that that's a really good idea to utilize that as much as you can. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Yes. I just want to uh, open up with a comment that I think we can really drive forth uh, diversity panels by... Uh, Letting everybody know that we get major second edition spoilers when we come to the <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep that in mind for next year. Oh, uh, should we have uh, cards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are your second edition diversity spoilers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I was thinking about, from the GM perspective, how, how, how great it is to, to have these characters that are be, being written from different point of views. And how GMing is uh, often just uh, an excellent opportunity for very bad acting. Uh, you know, turning, you know, using voices and you're turning sort of, I mean, you really can use like uh, invitations of actors that you need to, to create different characters or um, um, obviously just kind of, I mean, and doing stereotypical things that are in a, you know, in a non-harmful way just to get a variety of different, different expressions it could seem like a thing that you would, you would, um, you would uh, use as a, as a sort of crutch. Um, thinking about your use of the third person narrative versus the first person, mm. I was thinking about the challenges for a GM who wants to portray different kinds of characters but doesn't want to do so in a way that could be offensive, especially yeah. if you're playing in public. Yeah. So, if you had any thoughts on that. Um, so of uh, making sure that uh, the way you're portraying a character who's not like you is not an offensive stereotype? That's a good question. What do you guys think? That's a really big question. Yeah. Don't do accents. That's my main advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I say just pay attention to the the way that you're portraying the character and the mannerisms and just sort of second guess yourself of like, well, am I assuming that this character is talking in this way or acting in this way because that's my stereotype of what I think this person is like? And, you know, I think you're very right, especially maybe, Linda, you have some things to say, but I think organized play, there's a, a lot of times like where yeah, it I mean, can we try, get we real did, yeah, careful. We, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, we try to, like when we're writing the character, present them, um, that's part of the reason why we have the box text in the beginning of yeah. the adventures to give a sense of what that character's voice sounds like. Um, and, you know, how do they phrase things and what do they say and what do they, what, what do they answer? Um, because, yeah, I, I'm, I, I mean, like, well, my mind is just swimming with, like, well, here's a list of harmful stereotypes and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, like, list all that. I know we have, um, we, we have some, we have some resources that we use within, um, I'm trying to think about some of the links that we have. Like, mm-hmm. I know, I know our editor Liz has compiled some lists mm-hmm. of things, like, here, here are certain stereotypes and here are certain, like, um, Here's certain ableist terms that you may not necessarily recognize yeah. or ableism, but I, I don't have a, a good way to reference you to that right now. So. Yeah. I think one thing that might actually work would be to pick out one prop for that character. It's something completely random, like a hat, okay? So you have a hat, 
And you have to think about, how is this character going to physically interact with this hat? And that pushes you out of the stereotype because it's a completely random thing. Like, why does this person have a hat? Or it could be a necklace. You know, like, what kind of necklace would this person have? Mm. How do they fiddle with it over the course of the conversation? And I think that that kind of pushes you toward a thing that is neutral, not inherently stereotypical in any particular way. Um, but it also distinguishes that character, you know? So they're like, oh, yeah, that's the person with the hat and these other traits. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really good suggestion. That, good, yeah. yeah, making them just beyond like what you sort of two-dimensionally think maybe the character is like and making them more of a real person by focusing on a proper or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything, Diego? I don't really have anything that you guys didn't argue. <laughs> okay. No, I am terrible at accents so, and, and voices, so I just don't <laughs> But, yeah, I, I think... Uh, much like I mentioned before with like monolithic things that are supposed to define a group of people in an RPG, uh, we tend to associate uh, peoples that are in areas that are analogs to real world things with with their types of speech and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, that's not always going to be true, like because somebody lives in a place that is similar to a, world, a real world place doesn't mean they speak with the same accent yeah. or or anything of that. And it's okay to acknowledge that and say, you know, their differences aren't on the things they say and the intent they say with them with and the way that those things are influenced by the world around them, but not where they put pitch. Yeah. I tend to... Um I, I tend to, when I have multiple characters speaking to each other, you know, if you, I tend to change change the pitch a little bit. So, like, I'll use a slightly higher pitch if I have, like, a, a female character talking to a male character. I'll try to pitch my voice down a little bit for the male character because I like to distinguish the voices. But I don't try to, I don't really try to emulate real-world accents. They may also do things like varying the, the speed at which I speak or, like, the inflection on words and things like yeah. that. And I think that's a... The, those can be those can be ways that you can help to distinguish a character. You know, where where do they pause? Where do they breathe? Um, you know, do they do they speak like they're reading out of a thesaurus? <laughs> do they uh, you know do they have certain gestures that they use? Are they are they going to offer you some food when you come in? Or is their desk piled high with papers? Do they do they seem like they were prepared for this presentation? Do they seem like they have something else that they need to go off and do right now? So I tend to. I tend to work more with that rather than it's a way to distinguish rather than accents. Uh, we just have a few minutes left here in the panel. So, did you have a question over there? Um, kind of. I suppose like, do um, you feel that there's a difference between tropes and stereotypes? And yes. Like, cause, well, because I know that some tropes actually are derived from stereotypes, but sometimes the trope kind of sheds some of the negative connotation and is a little safer. Um, so, like, you know, the African medicine man is a trope, but it's kind of also tangential to, you know, the magical N-word and, you know, yeah. the way voodoo is, you know, portrayed, which is also problematic. And yeah. So, you know, is that I, I suppose, yeah. Um, I generally consider from the perspective of whether or not that trope or idea is... Uh, is offensive to the people who it is it is connected to in the in the real world. So like if there's if there if you're making a reference to something that is a a real world cultural element that people are proud of and you're bringing it into the game and then that's more of like a matter of representation whereas if it's like like you were saying certain if you're bringing up things and then people are looking at that and like oh no that's like some old racist stereotype then that would be that'd be something to share away from. Yeah. 
Um, I guess in terms of just representation, I would think, okay, so if the person being represented by this trope ruled the world, like let's assume they have all the power in the universe. They can wear whatever they want. They can talk however they want. Do they want to take that? Is it still cool? Is it still badass? Yeah, okay. And it's probably okay. Probably. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, I, so, I don't really think that the two things are different, the uh, tropes and, and stereotypes. Um, I, I tend to think, feel like most of them are generally large generalizations of groups of people, and uh, that's never good. Um, yeah, I, I, I think a good way to approach things like that is, if I were to show this to somebody from this group, how would they feel about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess um, what I was saying, or what I meant to get at earlier, is that to me a trope is more of a story element, and a stereotype is more of a description of a person or group. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my distinction there. Like a trope, which is a bad trope, but is a trope, is the lesbian relationship always ends in tragedy and the lesbian always dies. Yeah. That's a trope. That's not a stereotype because you could have all different kinds of lesbians, but if they still have that same plot arc, that's a trope to me. Um, Okay, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you all so much for uh, coming and talking with us. We really appreciate it. And have a great convention. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.